Welcome to Living Faith, the podcast ministry of First Baptist Church, Avon Park, Florida. Fake prayers are not heard by God. Get rid of all the empty phraseology. Get rid of the trying to impress people with your words and just talk to God. That bores you to think of singing and worshiping God for eternity? Get saved and that communication with Him will be perfect, sinless. That's what prayer points to. It's a taste of that day. Welcome to the midweek edition of Living Faith. The midweek edition features teaching from our Wednesday night student Bible study, FBC 180. Our current series is Foretaste, Corporate Worship and Eternity. Did you know that our corporate worship time on Sunday morning is just a sample, a foretaste of heaven? As believers gather to sing praises, offer prayers and hear God speak to us through his word, we are in essence rehearsing for eternity where we will, with the angels and the saints from every tribe and tongue, join in to honor and glorify God through Jesus Christ. This series is helping our students understand the importance and centrality of corporate worship on Sunday morning by teaching them what the Bible has to say about why and how we worship as a believing community. So get your Bible and pen and let's join in on Foretaste, Corporate Worship and Eternity. What is so important about prayer, or what is the importance of prayer in public worship? One, God ordained prayer in public worship so that his people may communicate with him and receive grace. So that we might communicate with him and receive grace. How many of you pray? How many of you pray daily? Okay, that's good. We try. We try. Um, Are your prayers, let me ask you this question, raise your hand if your prayers are formal, as in now I'm going to pray. You know, you you stop and say I'm going to pray now, like you close your eyes and you you always are, you know, dear God, blah, 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 amen. Are your prayers like that? How many of your prayers are informal, as in in the situation, like, oh God, give me grace, give me patience, things like that? Well, those are all, yeah, those are all adequate and great forms of prayer. The Bible tells us that we should pray without, I expected y'all to know that, pray without ceasing. How many of you pray nonstop? Oh, yeah, Trevor, okay, yeah. You're so holy, thank you. Yeah, okay, okay, you can have some candy afterwards or something. I don't know. Trevor's real good and prays all the time, but for those of us who do not pray without ceasing, in the way that we think about it. It's hard to imagine what it means to pray without stopping, to pray without ceasing. And I think it's because we have this idea of prayer as a very formal start start and stop operation, that you must be by your bedside or kneeling somewhere with your hands folded and you must, you know, close your eyes, dear Jesus, dear God, whatever, and blah, and help mommy and help my cat and so and then in Jesus' name, amen, things like that. That's what we think prayer is sometimes, that we have to start and stop at a particular time, say particular things. Prayer is communicating with God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit lives within you, you have direct access to God the Father. So a prayer life can be something as simple as, like I told you, when I go to bed every night, if I'm super tired and those sheets are nice and cold, and I say, oh, dear Jesus, thank you for a bed. That can be prayer, and you should say prayers like that. Thank you for waking me up this morning. Thank you for giving me a sound mind. I'm not crazy this morning. Thank you for giving me another 
breath to breathe this morning. Thank you for getting me to school safely. And you, you can be legalistic about it and go down your checklist and say, okay, uh, thank you for breath and thank you for mom and thank you for my breakfast. That's legalism. And that's not from the heart and God does not care about that. More about that later. But real heartfelt nonstop prayer is a constant communication between you and God. Maybe you're talking to an unsaved family member or an unsaved schoolmate or an unsaved person you work with or whatever in the neighborhood with. You might quickly say, Holy Spirit, open their eyes to the gospel. God, give me strength to get, uh, and boldness to proclaim the gospel to them. That's praying. But there's a difference between that private, personal, one-on-one -on -one time of praying with God and what we're going to talk about tonight, and that's praying in the corporate setting. You know, when I come up here and I say, okay, let's bow our heads and pray, or in the service when Pastor Lehman comes up and says, you know, let us pray, or the deacon says, let us pray. You know, that's how they do. Isn't it? Isn't it? Carrie, you can handle some of that. You can take a, get, you get done with this really powerful song, and then the guy goes up, and let us pray. It's a, it's a little deflating. But we're going to talk about the difference between that private prayer time and what we do in our corporate worship service. So first of all, let's talk about a particular type of prayer we're going to call prayers of adoration. Prayers of adoration. Anybody know what adoration is? It's a big word. It's adoring. It's the kind of constant form of adoring something. We might say prayers of worship, prayers of praise, praise uh, prayers of worshiping God. That's what we mean by prayers of adoration. We're adoring God, one, when we worship God for who he is. We worship God for who he is. Before we even get to thank you for all the things I have, we say, God, thank you for being a wonderful, great majestic, holy, righteous, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God. If you were to try to sit down and write down all the adjectives you can think of to describe God, how long would you be writing? One hymn, one hymn just says, there's an old hymn called The Love of God, and it says that if we were even just to write about the love of God, just one attribute of God, his love, the hymn says that if we had a pen and we had ink as much as is in the ocean, and we had a scroll as big as the heavens are above, we could not, never stop to write the love of God. That's just one attribute. Think about his holiness, his righteousness, his purity, his beauty, his omnipresence, all those things. This is what we praise God for, for who he is. Before we even get to the things he's done for us, we say thank you for being God. You are a great God. You are a holy God. You are magnificent, you're beautiful, you're glorious, you're majestic. You can just go on and on and on. And by the time you get to praying for the things that you need or praying for the suffering or the quote-unquote trials you're in that are hurting your feelings or whatever, you might completely skip over that because you find yourself caught up in praising God for who he is. That doesn't mean you can't thank God for the things he's done. That's number two. God is worshipped for what he has done. Probably first and foremost, we ought to thank him for sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to bear our sins, to rise again. Thank you, God, for giving us the gospel so that we might know you, so that we might not have to go to hell for eternity, but we can have eternal life with you. That's when you've switched phases from thanking God for who he is to thanking God for what he's done through Jesus Christ. 
Let me ask you a question. Based, you know, think back to when we started our series, uh, Believe It, the 16 things you need to know about your faith. Um, if I told you that I loved my wife, Jessica, who's in the nursery tonight, if I told you I loved my wife, Jessica, but I couldn't tell you anything about her, I didn't know, yeah, what did you say, you're a terrible husband? I would be a terrible husband. Um, I didn't know the color of her hair. Well, I would know that, obviously. I didn't know the color of her eyes. I didn't know what her favorite food was, her favorite music. You know, if I didn't know about my wife, if I didn't know facts about her, do you think I could really love her? No. Now, look, look, can I know facts about her and still not love her? Yes. But can I love her without knowing the facts about her? No. Same thing is true with God. If you claim to love God, but you cannot, at least in your human language, describe him. If someone asks you, what does the Bible say about God? Who's the God you worship, and why is that different than the God the Muslims worship? Is it not the same God? Is it not the same God as the Mormons worship? If you cannot describe who the biblical God is, you cannot say that you love him. Now, it doesn't mean you have to know him perfectly or describe him perfectly because we can't. And we're always learning and we're always growing and we're always maturing in the faith. But if you don't even have a starting point, biblically, to say something about who God is, you cannot say that you know him. And if you not, cannot say that you know him, you cannot say that you love him. So it's important that we know about God before we even begin to say, thank you for what you've done for me. So one... Worship God for who he is, too. God is worshiped for what he has done. All right, let's look at a specific instance of this in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles, that's Old Testament, chapter 29. Not to be confused with 1 Corinthians, for you non-phonics people. <laughs> What's phonics? 1 Chronicles, chapter 29. Here's the setting. David wanted to build a temple for God. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah killed. Consequently, Uriah's wife Bathsheba was pregnant with David's child. It's very soap opera, very soap opera. David gets found out by a prophet and he calls him on it and calls him to repent. As punishment for David's sin, God restores him, God welcomes him back, but there's still punishment for his sin. One, his baby dies. Two, David is unable to build the temple. And God says, I will not allow you to build the temple. But your son Solomon will build the temple. And that's what happens here. They're beginning the process. David charges Solomon to build the temple. And they're beginning this whole fundraising thing, very much like we're doing to build our children's building. They're starting to raise money to build the temple for God. Look in verse 1. David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of the gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood. Besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, 
of, uh, and the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house. And for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the father's houses made their freewill offerings, as did the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 uh, derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for the whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Now I want you to see here how David responds. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, and watch the pattern. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you have exalted, you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you. And of your own stuff, <laughs> we have given you back your stuff. That's basically what he's saying. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O oh Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In uprightness of heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts to you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all that he may build the place for which uh, I have made provision. And then David said to the, all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to their king. Number one, David announces that Solomon will build a temple for the Lord. We just talked about this. The temple is the permanent version of the tabernacle. This is where God's presence, God's glory, God's goodness, it says God's quote-unquote his name will be there in the temple. And David has said, my son Solomon will build it, and then begins to collect these offerings. Number two, to dedicate the temple, David leads the people in blessing the Lord. David leads the people in blessing the Lord. I want you to see the subject, the subject of David's prayer is not I or me, but it's we. It's our. These are my people. They've given to you. We bless you. We magnify you. David is leading the people. Number three, because the leader prays, the leader prays as a representative of the people before God. Let me ask you a question. Are the people praying, or is David praying? 
very simple. Who, who's speaking this prayer? David. The people are not, to our knowledge, speaking. Second question. Are the people participating in the prayer? Yes. David is acting as a representative of the people. He's leading them in prayer. So although he's the only one speaking, it's not a prayer from David to God only. David is saying, our God, my God, we thank you. You've given us this opportunity. David is leading the people in prayer. So uh, number four, the people lift their hearts up to God with the one leading in prayer. So think about the opportunities you have to do this on a Sunday morning. Now, I cannot speak for whatever church you attend on Sunday morning, but I can speak for our church. The first thing that happens at First Baptist Church is the call to worship from the Scripture, and then I usually lead in what is called an invocation. Does anybody know what an invocation is? Yes. Well, yeah, it is an opening prayer. Let's get to the root word here. What is an invocation? It is an invitation, but let's get... What's the root word of invocation? Invoke. Does anybody know what it means to invoke something? To call on. To invite them. Who are we invoking and inviting? God. Now, he's already there. I mean, he's omnipresent, just like he was omnipresent here. But they prayed for his presence in the temple. So when we offer an invocation, it's more than just an opening prayer or like, oh, God, thank you for church, and we're going to have a good time today and bless everybody, and we're going to sing and stuff. It's an invitation for God to come down and be in our midst and his Holy Spirit to move in our hearts. I always say, God, send your Holy Spirit to open our hearts, to speak to us. Not that he can't without me saying that, but it's an invitation, and it lets you know that are listening, if you're listening, you are supposed to be connecting with me in that prayer. Think about when Pastor Lehman prays after those first couple songs. He stands up, he reads the scripture, and then we respond in prayer. You should be doing more than just listening as he prays. Now, he's doing the talking, and I don't know what it would look like if you started praying out loud too. It would be a little too charismatic for our Baptist church, but we might get there one day. But as of right now, Pastor Lehman speaks by himself, and we all listen. But we should be doing more than just listening. We should be lifting our hearts up with him. You notice that Pastor Lehman kind of switches between saying our father and our father, and then sometimes he says, my God, my God, you know, he does that kind of thing. He kind of alternates, and, and that's fine. But we should be connecting and fellowshipping in our hearts with him as he leads us in prayer. He's not praying instead of us. He's leading us in prayer to God. So we should kind of be in our hearts echoing the things he's saying. The same thing when anybody stands up to lead us in prayer. It's more than just listening to them say a singular prayer to God for themselves. We're supposed to be joining in with them and praying to God with them. All right, next. Prayers of confession. There are prayers of adoration, praise, thanksgiving, worship. There are also prayers of confession. One, we confess our sins to God. Two, God offers forgiveness through Christ. Turn to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 9. Here in chapter 9 in the book of Daniel, Daniel was a prophet that was raised up for Israel. Okay, back up. 
Pastor John on Sunday morning is taking us through the book of Amos. That's a small, minor prophet in the, in the Bible. Um, everybody remembers this. This is just review, so help me out. Um, by the time of Amos, the kingdom of Israel had been divided into how many kingdoms? Two. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, were they practicing the law of the Lord correctly? No. They had turned to idols. They had turned to themselves. Remember Pastor John's sermon from Sunday morning, how instead of caring for the needy and instead of caring for the house of the Lord, they had made beds of ivory for themselves and they had stretched themselves out on couches. And Pastor John says it that they were fat and happy, at ease in Zion, being lazy and uncaring and not following the law of the Lord, but only caring about their own selfish pleasures. God says there's judgment coming for these kingdoms. Now, the northern kingdom that we're talking about with the book of Amos, specifically, they will be conquered and taken out of their land by Assyria. But the southern kingdom of Judah, that's where the temple is. That's where Jerusalem is. That's where the seat of power is. That's where David was from. That's where Jesus will be from. Okay? Judah will not be taken by Assyria. They will be taken by Babylon and exiled. This is when Dan Daniel in Babylon is raised up as a prophet to Judah to call them to repentance so that God can send them back to the promised land uh, of Jerusalem and Israel. So that's the context in which David is, or Daniel is ministering. That will make a lot of sense as we read this prayer. Daniel 9, starting in verse 1. In the first year of King Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, that's Babylon, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. That's how long they would be in exile. Then I turned my face to the Lord God. Seek oh, first of all, this is telling. Daniel, as a prophet, has discerned from the other prophet how long this captivity will last, 70 years. Now, if you were Daniel the prophet... And if we could see into the future and know exactly how many years we would be in captivity before God allowed us to go back, some of us might be tempted to stop there. Oh, okay, that's just 70 years, and we'll be going back to the promised land. So we're fine. Let's just kind of live life as we're living it, continue along as we're doing, and in 70 years we'll be fine. That's not the way Daniel thinks. Immediately, verse 3, even though he knows in 70 years they'll be released, Verse 3, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, you see how he starts, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. 
All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured upon us because they have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke to us against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us the great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has even brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his plea for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Number one, the people were in exile in Babylon. Why were they in Babylon? Because they had sinned and they had turned away from God. God calls any turning away from him spiritual adultery. He had called Israel as his bride. Yet she continually turned away from him as an adulterer turns away from their spouse again and again and again. Number two, they were being punished by God for their sins and idolatry. Number three, Daniel intercedes for the people. Anybody know what it means to intercede? An, inter, an intercessor, someone that intercedes. What does that mean? Yes, interject, to do something on your behalf. Literally, they come between. They come between. So God has said what to Israel? You have sinned, and I am punishing you. So Daniel literally in this, well, figuratively, literally figuratively, <laughs> throws himself between the righteous condemnation of God and the sins of the people. He puts himself almost as if you were um, you know, standing before someone that's about to be executed and said, no, do not kill them. Daniel says, remember your mercy, O Lord. Don't extinguish us forever. Have mercy and forgive us. Does Daniel act as if they deserve forgiveness? No. What does he continue to say? You, O Lord, are righteous and merciful, but we deserve what? Open shame because we have sinned against you. So he's not asking for fairness. He's not asking for God to simply wink at our sin and let us go. He's asking for mercy. Daniel throws himself between God and the people, and he intercedes for them. Number four, Daniel owns 
the sin of his people. Daniel's a prophet. But did you hear how much of Israel he said turned against God? How much of Israel did Daniel say has turned against God? All of Israel has turned against you. Remember Isaiah in the temple when he saw the Lord? This was a prophet of God, someone that was righteous before God, someone that acted diligently before God, that had been called of God to be a messenger of his word. Isaiah, the great, almost the greatest prophet of the Old Testament except Elijah. When he sees God, he doesn't go up to God and say, God, I'm so glad that you're here because these people are a mess. And I'm having the toughest time getting them to repent, and they just won't listen to me. What does Isaiah do? I am undone. He puts a curse on himself. You remember what John, Pastor John was talking about on Sunday, uh, the previous Sunday with the woes? That was a particular term that prophets used that literally meant doom and destruction upon you. When you say woe to you, that means judgment is coming on you. But Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Daniel does not say, Lord, these people are giving me a headache, and I can't deal with it anymore. I'm so righteous, and I'm so holy, but they're sinners. Daniel owns his sin as a human being, as part of Israel. So someone standing to confess must do the same thing. You see, Daniel uses our sins. We deserve this. Next, Daniel confesses the sins of his people. And lastly, Daniel asks for mercy for his people. We don't often have a set time of confession in our corporate worship service. And, and that is something that you don't have to do in the corporate world. You can do that in your own time. But sometimes we do have a public confession time. Now, Pastor Lehman or I or Pastor John or anyone cannot get up and confess your sins for you. Just like we cannot stand and offer your praise for you. But what we can do is lead you in confessing our corporate sin to God. Just like Daniel did here and ask for God's mercy. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. Move out of the Old Testament into the New Testament and see what Jesus says about prayer. You all will be very familiar with this, I hope. Matthew 5, no, Matthew 6, verse 5. This is a good pattern for prayer. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not, like, be, not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask them. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Number one, big deal. Fake prayers are not heard by God. Fake prayers are not heard by God. I'll get to this second point, and then we'll revisit, or third point, we'll revisit that. Number two, do not pray. I don't, it changed all my praise to prayer. Do not pray to be seen. I had a Jehovah's Witness corner me in New York City. I was there on a little trip with a college, and we set up these little things called prayer stations on the street corners and just randomly asked passerbys if we could pray with them about something. It's just a small little way to try to reach out and touch people with the gospel. And um, a Jehovah's Witness came up to me, and if you know much about Jehovah's Witnesses, they like to pick out verses and try to make entire doctrines out of them. And he came up to me and pointed to this and had me read it, and I know where he was going. What does it say? He's like, what is, read that verse. What does it say? Okay, so uh, verse 5. Do not pray like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Okay, and he's like, see, you shouldn't be standing out here praying on the street corner. And he's making a big deal about that little part right there. Completely overlooking the reason that they may be seen by others. That's how you're not to pray. Don't pray in the synagogues or in your churches or on your street corners or in your schools or in restaurants to be seen. We do not pray so that people look and think, oh, what a nice family. What a nice Christian young man that is praying over his food. And if that's the reason you're praying, you're a hypocrite. You're praying falsely because you're praying to be seen by others. Okay? It doesn't outlaw praying in public. It says don't pray to be seen by others so that others will remark. Uh, number three, don't flatter God with empty words. We are to praise God. Anybody know what flatter means? It's when you offer false niceties to someone yeah you're trying you're trying to get in good with your teacher who you don't like who has given you bad grades and who you could care less couldn't care less for but you walk in on test day and say my you're looking lovely today and here's a piece of candy or whatever you give teachers nowadays okay that's flattery it does not work with god okay you cannot impress god you cannot get God on your side by coaxing him and saying nice things to him with an insincere heart. That's because, fourthly, we must pray with a sincere heart. I want to talk about prayer just for a minute. We've been talking about it this, this long. Many of you are uncomfortable with prayer. If we were to split up at this very time into just random groups and I say, go around the circle and pray... Many of you would be uncomfortable praying out loud and leading others in prayer. And there's probably a few reasons for that. One, you don't know God. Two, you can't say anything about God because you have not learned about him. You don't know how to address him because you have never addressed him. You're scared of him. You're, he's unknown to you. You can't relate to him because you're a sinner. You could be unsaved, you could be saved, and these things could still be true. If that's you, just you know, think about it in your mind. A lot of us, when we pray, though, if I were to call on you, you would be very comfortable praying out loud because you're a good public speaker, and you're okay talking in front of people. And so you might be very comfortable 
elaborating in a very nice, lovely, wordy prayer that says all the right things, hits all the right buttons, theologically, biblically, prayerfully, all the things we've talked about. You get adoration and confession. You mix it all up, and you've got a good little formula. But it's empty because you don't mean it. And the words mean nothing to you except that you've learned to say them. One of my favorite prayers um, from ushers, not at this church, obviously, but from ushers is, God, use these offerings to the upbuilding of thy kingdom, you know. What does that even mean? Nobody knows what that means. For the upbuilding of thy kingdom right here and around the world, bless God. Nobody knows what that means. There's other things you say. What's one you learned when you were little? God is great. God is good. Last time for that. When I was little, I thought the first couple phrases there were all one word. Because you just learn it like LMNOP. I thought that was one word, LMNOP. So you hear God is great, God is good. It's like God is great, God is great. So when you're little and you're learning words, that's all you know. You're not thinking God is great. Hallelujah. You're thinking God is great. God is great, God is good. You know, it's two words. God is great, God is good. Those are empty prayers. Now they're sweet and they're nice. And there's nothing wrong with little children learning to pray. But if you're still praying like that, one of my favorites, one of my favorites is that we talk so differently when we talk to God. Now, it's one thing to put on reverence. And when you approach God, there should be a bit of quietness in your soul. You should not come to him presumptively, assuming that you're good enough to come before him. There should be a little change in your tone. Well, what's funny to me is how we talk to God differently. If I'm talking to Jarrett on a normal day or whatever, if he's sitting right here, I would not carry on a conversation with Jarrett and say his name after every single phrase. And Jarrett, it's just so nice that you're here today. Jarrett, I'm glad you got your pencil. And Jarrett, thank you for filling out your thing. And Jarrett, thank you. You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, Lord, we thank you for this day. And dear God, we thank you. And Lord and Father and Jesus. And who are you talking? Yeah. I know. We all do. Another one I love is just. Just. We just think. I've tried to figure out where that came from in our prayers. Because I even said it you know, today praying in the office with someone. And God, we just thank you. We just, we simply, that's what it means, we simply, we just, we just want to ask you and God just, just like, where are these words coming from? They're just empty words. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Learn to pray. <laughs> just learn to pray. Now, you're not talking to your buddy you know, the thing in the 90s was, you know, in youth groups was Jesus is your, is, and this is going to sound so old, but it was the 90s. Jesus is your homeboy. What? That was the thing in the 90s. And my youth group had a picture, my youth group had a picture of Jesus in jeans and a t-shirt stage diving off of a concert. And the whole idea was to make Jesus somehow relevant to us. And you could hear some people praying like this to God. Oh, daddy, daddy, we thank you. There's an appropriate way to speak to God. So when I say talk like you're talking to a friend, I don't mean to talk irreverently to him. But I do mean just to get rid of all the junk that you've learned. Get rid of all the empty phraseology. Get rid of the trying to impress people with your words. And just talk to God. I can't tell you what that sounds like for you. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that sometimes when you don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays for you with groanings, literally with noises that are too deep for words. 
Now, you're talking about tongues on Sunday morning and this coming Sunday morning. So I'm going to leave that to your Sunday school teachers. That'll be fun for them. But the Holy Spirit can pray for you. I don't have time to get into that. Let's go. Matthew chapter 6. We'll keep going here. Number one, briefly, through the Lord's Prayer, we see this pattern. Number one, honor God as holy. When you come to him in prayer, honor him as holy. That's what it means. Hallowed be your name. You're holy. Your name is exalted. Your name is separated from us. Number two, pray for God's will and not yours. The very first thing out of Jesus' mouth when he prayed in the garden. Now, this is the very son of God who is about to take a cross that's not his. He's about to bear the sins of the entire world and be forsaken by his own father on the cross. Yet the first thing that comes out of his mouth is not, God, take this cup from me. I can't do it. The first thing Jesus says, you know what it is? God, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. So let that be your prayer too. Don't presume upon God. Say, God, if it be your will, give me whatever. Or let me see this. Or let me know this. Okay, keep going. Ask for God's provision. And that whole God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. By his hands we are fed, give us, Lord, our daily bread. We just spit that out. And we kind of spit this out too. But think about what it means to ask God for your daily bread. Right now, right here, in this moment, for this day, God, provide for me. Does it say that you will get a feast? Does it say that you will have everything you ever ask for? monetarily, success, wealth, all that good stuff? No. Even the prophet Elijah, when he was out in the desert, was only fed with a few crumbs of bread and some water. Ask God for your daily bread and thank him for what he gives you. Next, ask for God's forgiveness. goes back to that whole confession thing. Forgive our debts. Also, it's included in there that you're asking for forgiveness as you are forgiving others. That prayer is blocked if you have anger against someone, if you are harboring unforgiveness against someone, your prayer for forgiveness is blocked. Lastly, pray for God's deliverance. Deliver us from evil. Take us away from temptation. All right, second subject, very quickly, that's prayer. If you have any questions about prayer, obviously talk to me. Let's turn to Psalm 100, and as you're turning there, let's ask this next question. Why do we sing, or we sing in worship, or no, the question is, why do we sing in worship? Why do we sing in worship? And here's the answer, we sing in worship to praise God and to teach and build up one another. We sing to praise God and to teach and build up one another. Psalm 100, it's a very short psalm. Everybody's reading from ESVs, I think. If you're not, it'll be fine. Read aloud with me Psalm 100. It's very short and very familiar. Psalm 100. Here we go. Verse 1. Here we go. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. True joy 
makes noise. True joy makes noise. There's no way that you can experience the joy of knowing God, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and not make noise. And one way that noise comes out is in corporate worship when we are invited to sing to God. Number two, we come to God with singing. Number three, we sing words of thanksgiving. All this is right here in this passage. And then number four, we, singing helps us remember the goodness of God to us. So right here, you can see it all. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. If you know him, you will be joyful and you will sing. Come into his presence with singing. Give thanks to him. And then number four, singing helps us remember the Lord is good. The steadfast love of, the God, of God endures forever. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's see singing in the New Testament. It's fine and good to go to the Psalms and see these things. What do we see in the New Testament as the pattern for worship in the Christian church? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. If I were to say in church, sing. Let's stand and sing. Who in your mind do you immediately think we are singing to? The Lord Jesus Christ. We're singing to God. And that's true sometimes. Colossians, or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Look at verse 19. Who does it say we are to address with our songs? Address one another. Okay, let's go to Colossians chapter 3. One more verse tonight. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3 verse 16. Colossians 3 verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So number one, we sing to one another. That's weird. It sounds strange, and I don't mean on Sunday morning that you ought to turn to your neighbor or turn to the person behind you and literally sing at them or to them. But the whole idea is that we're singing and teaching one another with our songs. Number two, we also sing to the Lord. By singing, number three, by singing to each other, we are teaching each other. And number four, we are giving thanks to God. They're singing to each other to learn about who Jesus is. They were proclaiming that Jesus is God, that Jesus became a man, that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again, and that he is our Savior and our Messiah but they were singing it to one another. Lastly tonight, I want you to know that singing is not an option. Singing is not an option. Number one, the Bible commands us to sing. Number two, this is a command from God. Where the Bible speaks, God speaks. Number three, to not sing is disobedience. It is sin to not sing. Specifically, I'm talking about the corporate worship service. 
There's something uh, in the Reformation tradition called the binding of the conscience. Don't wrap up yet. I'll, I'll the binding of the conscience. In the Roman Catholic Church, out of which the, the reformers were coming out of, in the Roman Catholic Church, the priest and the church, from the Pope down, could tell the people what they ought to do in church, and they were bound to do it, whether or not it was in the Bible. If the Pope were to suddenly say, cut off your right hand to receive eternal life, the people had no choice in the matter, whether it was here or not. The reformers said, that's false. If you're going to bind somebody's conscience and make them do something by order from God, it must be found here. So I have no right to tell you and to command you and to expect you to cut off your hand or to march towards the front to receive communion, or to do anything else. You don't have to do anything a preacher or a worship leader tells you if it's not here. But God says, sing to me. So when you are in the congregation of his bride, and the worship leader, Joy, me, or whoever, tells you to sing, it is not a suggestion. It is not an option if that's your thing. If you like singing, not an option. If you refuse to sing in that moment because the worship leader has told you to sing and the Bible says to sing and God has told you to sing, you are sinning. You are in disobedience. You might not like the song, but guess what? Worship isn't about you. It's about the person in front of you, the person behind you, the person to your left. Because we don't worship individually, we worship corporately, together, publicly. So while I might not like a particular song, Jimmy John sitting next to me might love that song. And for me to sit there and roll my eyes and twiddle my thumbs and not sing and wait for the next song to start, I am dishonoring him and I'm dishonoring God who paid for us both. So you have an obligation to sing in church. It is not an option. As with anything else that you find here that someone tells you to do. So lastly tonight, corporate worship. Corporate worship is a foretaste of eternity because we communicate with God through prayer and singing. We also fellowship with each other as we pray and sing to one another. How does all this point to heaven? What kind of communication will we have with God in heaven? Well, we will sing. I mean, what, what, what kind of communication? Can you see God right now? No. Can you feel him tangibly right now? No. But in heaven, in heaven, he will. There will be no sin. Can you imagine talking and being able to communicate with God with no barrier of sin between you? Now, your sin is relieved right now through Jesus Christ, but when you die, you are made perfect in the presence of God. If you are in Christ. And that communication with him will be perfect. Sinless. That's what prayer points to. It's a taste of that day. Our singing. Guess what they're doing in Revelation around the throne? Singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you to receive honor and glory and power and dominion and strength. For you saved us and you redeemed us as a people by your own blood. 
that bores you to think of singing and worshiping God for eternity, get saved. Believe the gospel tonight because you're obviously not if that sounds boring to you. To stand in the presence of your God and to sing to him and to proclaim his greatness with everyone that he has ever saved and ever will save. That's why corporate worship through prayer and singing is a foretaste of heaven. If you do not know Jesus, if you do not know what in the world I'm talking about tonight, the gospel doesn't mean anything to you, you don't know what I'm talking about with sin, death, hell, you die right now, you have no idea where you would be with God. Come talk to me afterward. We'll talk about the gospel, we'll talk about Jesus, and we'll walk through that together. If you are saved, you don't pray, you don't know how to pray, you don't participate in prayers and corporate worship, you don't sing, I invite you to learn those things and to do them out of obedience to God and out of respect and love to one another. Now, let's pray. Thank you, God, for this day, for every day that you give us to turn to you, to turn to your word, to learn more about you. Every single breath that you give us is mercy and grace. We don't deserve anything but hell right now. But you gave us your son, Jesus, so that we might have life not only here and more abundantly here, but we might have it for eternity. We grieve with those in our congregation and in our own youth group who have lost loved ones this past week, Mr. Bill and Mr. Mike. And we think of those families who are suffering through loss. Lord, what a sweet time for us to be able to learn to pray for one another, with one another, to bear each other's burdens, to feel each other's pains and grief, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to grieve with those who grieve and to weep with those who weep. Bind our hearts together as your people. Give us a taste of eternity each and every time we come together to worship you. We'll give you thanks and honor and glory through your Son, Jesus Christ, now and forever. Amen. That's all for this midweek edition of Living Faith. Listen in every week for more from the preaching and teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. You don't want to miss any of our current Sunday morning sermon series, Roll Down, Judgment and Restoration in the Prophecy of Amos. Our senior pastor, John Beck, will be walking us through that important Old Testament book in the coming weeks. For more information about FBC 180, the youth and family ministry of First Baptist Church, you can go to our website at fbc180.com. You can find our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash First Baptist Avon Park Youth. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash FBCAP180. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. Our Sunday service begins at 1045 in the morning. You can find all this information and more at fbcap.net. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next time on Living Faith.